Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. We are recording this on Wednesday. Famously, a week is a long time in politics. Who knows what the next few days will bring. Uh, as, As we're recording this, I think the resignation tally by some counts is 12, by others is 15. What's your prediction? I think he'll be gone by the weekend, but I'm gone-ish anyway. I mean, presumably, we can always re-record, can't we, and just edit it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's extraordinary, though, isn't it? It reminds me of, well, so I was trying to think about this, the fall of Thatcher, do you remember the fall of Thatcher? Yes, yes. I remember I was at university in 1990, and it was quite a thing. And do you know what was trending on Twitter last night? Well, you you gave me a sneak preview beforehand. Yeah, yeah. chaos with Ed Miliband. Yeah, it's been deployed a few times over the past few years when everything has gone insane. I know. Does it feel good when that happens? Mm. Come on, not sure. I've said to you before. I think you would have been an excellent prime minister, Ed, and and I would still consider you for the role in the Jeffocracy. But you know, stuff would have happened like happens to everybody. You know, like Tom Watson would have gone to some festival and stripped naked to the waist and be pictures in the tabloids, and you'd have to talk about that. Chucker Amuna would have still gone off to form Change UK. That was his destiny, and you'd have had to deal with that. Instead, there's this golden alternate universe. The, the Millieverse. Come on, I'm finding this conversation quite uncomfortable. Why? No, I'd have rather have won the election. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, are you, are you willing to um, give us a number? I just sort of think it's going to be the men in grey suits, mm. I think. Here's what I'd do if I was him. So he's, he doesn't answer his own door at number 10. Somebody does that for him. Yeah. If, if, if my uh, aide came, came and said somebody's at the door, I would ask what colour suit they were wearing. And if it's ah. grey, I'd say, oh, don't let them in. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's... But I, I want to sort of give a shout out to Derek, the school caretaker at my son's school, because... 
I was at my son's play in Midsummer Night's Dream. Sam played Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream. And honestly, I want to give a shout out to Brookfield Primary School because it was an absolutely fantastic production. The kids were just brilliant and the teachers did an amazing job. But you'll be proud of me in one sense because I switched off my, I put my phone onto airplane mode because I thought I'm not going to be sort of distracted by office texts or whatsapps or whatever and so then derek the caretaker the school caretaker comes up to me and says sunak and javid have resigned (laughs) and so i said to him (laughs) afterwards i will always remember where i was and who told me that and then i started joking with the other parents i was saying listen if you want the political grapevine to be honest don't come to me (laughs) go to derek because he knows much more than me thank god that derek the caretaker wasn't interested enough in the production to switch his phone onto airplane mode I think, to be fair to Derek, it was after the thing in right. Peanut was over that he he, he did it. But anyway, uh, my primary thought is this guy has been terrible for politics and terrible for honesty, decency, integrity, all of those things. And the sooner we get rid of him, the better. He's toxic for our politics. Mm-hmm. He, he's just toxic for our politics. That's my That's my overwhelming feeling. And actually, you know what's interesting is that talking as I do in the corridors to Tory MPs and so on, I mean, they basically, so many of them agree. I mean, okay, I'm probably talking to people who've been his critics, but people just are less like, it's just debasing of politics. I mean, it really is debasing of politics. And in a way, what I think is interesting about it also is that somebody once used the word to me that being prime minister is like having, I think they said, an MRI of your soul. which sounds pretty scary. And in a way, at one level, you feel he's going to have been undone by some things that were avoidable, party gate, the handling of Owen Patterson, what happened with Chris Pincher, all of those things. But in a sense, they weren't avoidable for him because it would have, if it hadn't been those things, it probably would have been some other thing because they all speak to his fundamental modus operandi don't they yes yes because it doesn't feel like it's just events dear boy it, it feels like yeah. his fundamental personality i mean i think i think was it some me or somebody else said once you know the people who know him the most like him the least right yeah 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 i, I think the other thing to say is the tory party does have a sort of identity a bit of an identity crisis they you know won in areas they had never won before in 2019 and they've clearly big there's a big ideological conflict within them about which way to go and that may all play itself out so i think that there's there are there there are deeper forces but i don't think those deeper forces would have done for johnson actually if it hadn't been for his appalling personal hygiene i mean he's just he's just a he's a bad guy and you know people these journalists used to say to me i can think of one in particular who always used to say look we don't know how it's going to come crashing down it's a couple of years ago, but it will come crashing down. And at that point, Johnson was riding high. And you think, well, it doesn't seem like it's coming crashing down already. Mm. But I also I also think it does speak to the British people, a sense of decency in the, among the British people that they he's been exposed and people really don't like it. How long before he's back on Have I Got News For You then? <laughs> Not very long, I think. <laughs> so should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes, we're very much on your patch. It's in my wheelhouse. In your wheelhouse, exactly. Um, We're talking about um, progress to meet the government's net zero targets. So there was this report released last week from the Climate Change Committee. It's a whopper. It's 619 pages. 
but I, I've read the sort of vast majority of it. In fact, I was doing an event with Theresa May the the following day for the Climate Change Committee, a sort of cross-party thing, and I ran into her in the corridor and I said, oh, look forward to speaking with you at this event. And I said, um, I'm, you know, the report 619 pages long and she gave me a Theresa May look, <laughs> to say, <laughs> which I totally sympathised with. So so the report is, I mean, basically reveals how much work we still need to do to meet our ambitions in this area. And, and it, it, it's quite bleak in some ways, but we, we thought we'd delve deeper into it and into the issue and talk to some experts about where we can find optimism. And we're talking to Mike Thompson, who is from the Climate Change Committee, Mika Minio Paloello from the TUC, and to Jacob Ainscoff from Lancaster University. About a pet favourite of ours, Ed, deliberative democracy. Absolutely. And we should say you might be um, AWOL for that interview. Yes, yes. Now, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I stumbled. You stumbled. I stumbled <laughs> quite a lot, actually. Have we got any Ed falling over on this week's episode? No. I nearly had another spill on my bike, actually, but it's these headphones. I was sort of fiddling with the headphones. I told anyway. you. I warned you off those. Sorry, it's about you, not about me. I, I, I stumbled across the... You stumbled. I stumbled oh, yeah. across the Pride Parade with Jean on Saturday. Oh, I wanted to stumble across the Pride Parade because I was in Covent Garden, actually. Oh, that's where we were. And then I said, yeah. oh, we should go and look at this. And it was it was just great. And we, we can often feel like things are going to wreck and ruin this this week's news. This week's news being an example of that. Yeah. But... That just in my lifetime, I know the idea I that it, it is a mainstream thing that totally people right. do with their totally children. Right. Because in my lifetime, you would still hear things like, uh, "Oh, well, it's fine if they do it behind closed doors," or "Children totally should right. know about this," or Section Twenty Eight. And the, there were just so many families. You're totally right. You're totally right, man. It just feels like things have moved on so far with the I acknowledgement totally. that there are still battles to be won. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. And actually, you had five prime ministers, I think, the five living prime ministers, I think, writing for the I newspaper. I love that. It's like when they do one of those anniversary episodes of Doctor Who and they get all the uh, all the surviving ones back in. Uh, you know, and I think, I, I, and actually, I was in Covent Garden for this New York Times event and I, and I was then had to get back for childcare, but I did want, I did, was quite keen to see it because I thought I might stumble across it because I felt exactly the same way you did. That's a great reason to be cheerful. Yeah. What's yours? I've got five words for you. Mm-hmm. Only murders in the building. It's back. Honestly, I, I am hooked. For those who don't know, it's Steve Martin, Selena Gomez, Martin Short. It's about, it's so New York. My aunt was here from New York and um, she watched some of it with me and she just, we agreed it was just so New York. Oh yeah, if you've ever had a, a, the sort of fantasy and living in one of those apartment buildings on the Upper West Side and reading the New Yorker, it just ticks all those boxes, doesn't it? And there's also total escapism for mm. me, you know. There's no sort of politics in there. But there is podcasting. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To begin the conversation from the Climate Change Committee, we have Director of Analysis and Chief Economist Mike Thompson. Hello. Hello, Jeff. He's a man with a plan, Jeff. He's a man with a plan. He's a man with a very weighty tome. A big plan. It is a big plan. I mean, I've skimmed it. Edda's oh, come on, there. you haven't skimmed it. What do you mean, skimmed it? I mean, 619 pages. Ed, Ed, Ed has, you mean you've, you've scrutinised, you've, you've committed each of those 619 pages to memory? Absolutely. 
so, I mean, where, where do you even start with a, a task as big as, as assessing the UK's progress on climate change targets? Yeah, well, as you say, it's been a big task because what we're trying to do is a big task, right? We're, we're trying to change across the whole economy, across all of our energy use, across the cars that we drive, across the foods that we eat and the way that we produce them. So it is a massive task. We've been doing this for a little while, actually, and that helps. So we've got, we've got a good platform. It was Ed, in fact, that created us as Secretary of State in the Climate Change Act. What we do essentially is we take that kind of pathway, that vision of where we need to get to. And then we look at all these changes that we need to see happen across the whole economy, transport, the cars, the vans, the, the trucks on our roads into the electricity that we produce, etc. And then each of those areas, we look at, well, what are the changes that need to happen in terms of the adoption of the new technologies? And then we come back another level from that, actually, and we say, what are the conditions for success that we need in order to drive those changes? What do we need to see from people? What do we need to see from businesses? Where do we need to see attitudes change and technologies develop? What do we need from government to put in place the conditions to drive those changes through? And if this was my school report, I'm not sure I would be in any hurry to talk to my parents about it. Harder for the government, Jeff, to do what you used to do with your school reports, which is just to sort of conveniently lose them on the way home. Well, I would do that. I'd sometimes steal report paper and write my own reports. But uh, mm, I'm sure that was convincing. I'm sure the government considered that. Yeah. But, but yeah, just, just to start with positives, what are we doing well when it comes to meeting our net zero targets? Well, I mean, it's worth saying, first of all, the targets themselves, you know, we are well beating at setting targets. Um, you know, we were the first big economy to set a net zero target. That was a really big move, right? And we now see these, they have spread across the whole world. Everyone's got one now. And that makes a big difference, right? If those can be delivered, that will make a huge difference on tackling climate change. The second thing that the government has done is it's backed up that long-term target with the right targets for 2025, 2030, 2035. Those are all things that we recommended and they've adopted targets that are tough. They have actually come up with a decent overall plan. The rough picture for what they think they want to do to achieve those targets, we think is pretty credible, it's pretty good. Now, the problem comes in the implementation of it, in translating those targets, those plans into action, right? That's the thing that it's not only the UK that is struggling with that. Again, that's a problem that everyone needs to do across the world. But we look at kind of the implementation of the plans. And at this point, they're not strong enough. They haven't moved fast enough. In some cases, we don't see proposals for policies to, to make a difference in a few really important areas, actually. Say a bit more, Mike, about what those areas are, where the government is falling short. The two biggies that we pick out in this are the agriculture and the land use sector. A lot of focus on energy, of course, when we talk about climate, but the food that we eat, the way we produce it is so important. And we need our land and agriculture sector, not just to produce food in a lower carbon way. We also need it to release land that we can use to sequester carbon by, by growing trees, also producing more bioenergy resources that uh, that we can use to displace fossil fuels in, in applications that we can't electrify. But agriculture and land use stands out as one where it's so important. It's a, a, a big sector in terms of emissions. It has a big role to play in helping the other sectors too. And we simply don't have a strategy. Every other area has a decarbonisation strategy. Agriculture and land use don't. The other one that we've described as shocking as a, as a gap is energy efficiency in people's homes. 
So helping people to improve the efficiency of their homes in easy ways and in more difficult ways, like installing maybe solid wall insulation or underfloor insulation. That's a concern for climate. But of course, it's just a simple concern for energy security and for people whose bills are going through the roof. I want to come on shortly to why maybe the government isn't achieving what they've set out to do. But just talk to us about one very interesting fact in your report, which Jeff noticed on page 450 something, didn't you, Jeff? Yes. Yeah, I got my highlighter pen out. Yeah, exactly. Which is that you used to say that the low carbon transition, zero carbon transition by 2035 would cost about 1% of our national income. Now you're saying that if gas prices, and it is an if, but if gas prices were to remain at, at current levels or high levels, it would actually lead to a saving of 0.5% of national income. When the Climate Change Act was first passed, we thought that would cost 1% to 2% of GDP because we thought that the solutions were fundamentally expensive. We thought wind power, electric cars, we thought these things would cost more than gas power, than, than petrol and diesel cars. But of course, as we've rolled these things out, what we've seen is that businesses do what businesses do and they drive down the cost of them. They improve the technologies. They scale them up and that has caused huge cost savings. So that has meant that even before the current gas crisis, we thought that that cost was down to less than 1% compared to the old dirty fossil fuel technologies. The renewables look even more cheap than they already did. And actually, we think that means that delivering on this net zero program will cut our costs overall. Now, let's talk about public engagement, because that's a big theme of the CCC Change Committee's work. How do you think the government's doing on public engagement? And what are some things that it could be doing that it's not doing? The government's put out some nice warm words on public engagement. So in that, I mentioned their net zero strategy. They talk in there about how important public engagement is. They recognise that we're entering a phase now where we need people to buy electric cars, for example. We need people to insulate their homes. We need them ultimately then to, to take up heat pumps or maybe in the, in the longer term, some, some hydrogen boilers alongside that, heat networks as well. But we need people to be making choices in their own homes, the way they drive, the way they travel, the things they eat, etc. The government's recognised that. But what it hasn't done is do anything about it, really. So we kind of have an acceptance of this, this part of the problem but again, without a solution, it's another one of the big gaps in the proposals at the moment. And essentially, we would like to see a lot more open and honest conversation from the government. The vast majority of people are concerned about climate change. The vast majority are already trying to do things about it. But when you actually break down, well, are they doing the right things? Do they know what really makes a difference? In a lot of cases, actually, people don't. And that's not a good way to kind of bring people with you, right? You need to kind of help them to, to do the things that matter rather than just the things that might seem easy and might, might seem natural. So could a way of doing that be a modern equivalent of public service information films, which I, I guess in today's world would involve spending a lot on advertising? Yeah, and th there have been some examples of this. Scotland actually have done this, a scheme that really was around net zero that was, you know, let's do net zero together. And they had billboards on the sides of bus stops. And I think that is certainly part of it, the kind of the, the information campaigns. I think we would also really like to see alongside that some really direct, helpful stuff like on the energy efficiency side, on people shifting over to heat pumps. We'd like a really strong advice service there that doesn't just tell people what will help but then kind of guides them through the process. It's incredibly difficult at the moment to get a heat pump fitted in your home. And what about diet, Mike? Diet, I think, is a really difficult one, isn't it? You can see that it's a sensitive area. I think, first off, it's important to say the recommendations that we've made 
are not for everyone to be vegan. The recommendation is for a reduction towards healthy eating in terms of the amount of meat and dairy that we consume. We've got a, a 20% reduction in meat and dairy to 2035, going on to a 35% reduction in meat by 2050. I think there are a few things you can do that don't require, say, a meat tax or something is at the extreme end. And I think we've said we don't really want that. The, the food strategy that the government commissioned, the independent one, said that probably isn't the answer either. But yeah, simple information to help people to understand that eating less meat is healthier for them and uh, better for the climate. And then some things like government procurement, the things that we put on the table in in hospitals, in schools, and working with the supermarkets to help people with the choices, you know, getting away from the way that we kind of position things in the aisles that points people towards meat. There's, there's simple things that, that can be done there, better labelling perhaps of products, that sort of stuff. And there's also one other thing which we can reveal exclusively on Reasons to be Cheerful, which is that and this is obviously a big news story, which is that the chair of the Climate Change Committee, Lord Deben, and I have got together, and he famously fed his daughter a beef burger when he was, I think it was Agriculture Secretary, to show that British beef was safe. And I famously ate a bacon sandwich. And I think he and I believe that we are the best people to promote meat alternatives, Jeff. So what, what does this mean? Billboards, cinema adverts? Yeah, of him... I think his daughter's not available. I think she's sort of got a life. Uh, uh, him eating a meat alternative, plant a plant-based burger, me eating a plant-based bacon sandwich. What do you think? Don't you think that's... I mean, it would get attention, don't you think? I th- this, this could be the thing that will shift the dial on it, yeah. If we can, you can, you know. You know, across parties because he was a conservative cabinet minister. People like that, don't they? Exactly. What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm I'm into it as a vegetarian. We've got to make this happen. Exactly. Can we just draw the link? If you had the effect on meat and dairy consumption that you're proposing, what would that mean for the climate? How, just explain the transmission mechanism. Yeah. So, so um, essentially, ruminant animals, animals that eat grass and digest it, like cows and, and sheep, they burp a lot of methane, and methane is a really potent greenhouse gas, much more potent than, than carbon dioxide. They're not always just grass-fed. A lot of the time, they'll also have some, uh, some feed that they consume alongside that. So they also become very land-intensive, much more inefficient to rear an animal than just to grow a crop. You grow a crop, you consume it directly, you use a small amount of land. If you start to, uh, to have an animal in that chain as well, then, then you use a lot more land. So that gives you two opportunities in reducing the numbers it allows you to directly cut the emissions that are coming from the cattle and the sheep. But it also allows you to free up land that you can then use either to grow other crops or to produce bioenergy or to directly sequester carbon by, for example, planting trees on, on some of that land. So that gives you this kind of double win. Mike, there's, there's so much we haven't covered in all those 600 and some pages. I recommend that people do what I'm going to do and, and take it for their summer reading. But having published a report and identified all these areas in which we're falling short and done the analysis, how do you stay personally optimistic? I think the role that we play in the Climate Committee is fundamentally a kind of a helpful and therefore a hopeful role. You know, our job is to help to map out for the government this is how you do it. You know, this is what the answer looks like. This is what the solutions are to tackling climate change. So it is, it is fundamentally hopeful, right? I think in this particular report, I would maybe pick out a couple of things. To get the solution, you need, you need businesses and you need people to respond and you need government to put in place policy. I think that's kind of the hope here is that 
this absolutely is something that can be done. I go back to the point at the beginning, the things that the UK has done on climate, they've tended to be quite contagious. We've seen them then spread to other countries around the world. And what we need around the world at the moment, we've got the net zero targets now, we need stronger near term targets, and we need delivery. So there's a real window here for the UK to lead on that delivery. Well, look, Mike Thompson, uh, you're the man with the plan. It's been really great to talk to you. And also, I feel like uh, you've given us a sense of optimism and you're providing really a route map for government to move forward on this. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With us now is Climate and Industry Policy Officer for the TUC, Mika Minio-Paloello. Hello, Mika. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. We have talked on the podcast in the past about the need for a just transition and the idea of a Green New Deal. So hopefully we're all up to speed with these ideas. But can you talk to us about the relevance of the TUC and trade unions more broadly to the climate crisis? Sure. The climate crisis will transform our society. It will transform our economy in quite fundamental ways, how we live, how we move, how we work. Trade unions have a key historic long-term role over more than 100 years of building up collective power of workers and organizing and fighting for workers to be able to work safely, to be paid decently, to be able to have freedom and rights. And that, if we think about the role of the trade unions in effectively creating a lot of those rights while the UK was going through massive transformation in the Industrial Revolution, well, now we are again going through a massive transformation, hopefully to a, a better society. Trade unions have a key role in making sure that actually happens, as well as making sure that the climate transition happens at the scale and pace that we need. Now, Mika, um, there's been lots of talk, political talk in the last 10 years or more about green jobs. Maybe you can start by saying, what is a green job? But secondly, how has the UK government, particularly in the last few years, done at delivering these jobs? And if and if it hasn't delivered jobs of either the quality or the number that are required, 
what are the things that need doing that might make it happen? I mean, there's lots of different ways you can think of a green job. We tend to think about it mostly as jobs that are very much part of of delivering that climate transition. That might be people who are building electric vehicles. It could be people who are putting in bike lanes. It could be people who are building offshore wind turbines. There's a range of jobs across across society. Sadly, one of the frustrations that a lot of people feel particularly in in areas where there are currently high carbon jobs, is that we've had many promises of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of green jobs, and they haven't quite materialized at that scale. That's partly because of government action. It's also partly because of the way certain industries have been structured, the way projects have been delivered. But there's there's been a, a challenge here where the promises have been large and delivery has been low. It's nowhere near the scale that was promised. Mika, if you were sort of in charge of this. We have this thing called in the podcast called the Jeffocracy, and I'm going early to the Jeffocracy, Jeff. Not a problem with me. Yeah, I know, never a problem for you. Uh, And also, you know, political change is in the air, so, you know, the (laughs) Jeffocracy is obviously one possibility. What would you do to go beyond the sort of hundreds of jobs that you're talking about to make the kind of industrial base a reality? So I think there's a couple of elements. One element, it's about scaling up. So if we're scaling up the target, you scale up the number and size of offshore wind turbines being installed, and you scale up the investment to make sure that you can build them here. So it's partly that. It's partly about having stronger conditions on the contracts, on the licenses, saying, well, if you're going to be installing offshore wind turbines here, if you're going to be making a lot of money from generating electricity here, then you need to be creating the jobs here. But also, crucially, we need to learn from what's been done well in particularly other European countries. And when we look, we see it's partly about having industrial champions and largely publicly owned industrial champions. So whether it's the Danish Orsted, largest offshore wind company in the world, whether it's Equinor from Norway, who are oil and gas company increasingly also doing renewables, or EDF in France, you know, the UK largely relies on to build nuclear power plants here. Those are publicly owned companies that have been around for a while that drive industrial change and that are committed to driving industrial change in those countries and take an active role in shaping the economy, shaping industry and building up local supply chains. Mika, can I ask, because of the lateness of the hour, so to speak, and the speed at which we need to reach net zero, you must have members working in high carbon or carbon intense industries who will legitimately be thinking, my job won't exist and there's perhaps not going to be anything to replace it in the short to medium term. How how do you approach that with your members? Yeah, no, that's absolutely crucial. There are many, many workers working in high carbon sectors who are afraid of what the transition means. We did a study last year that looked at a a range of high carbon sectors and showed we found 660,000 jobs that were at risk of being lost and of being offshored. But interestingly, those jobs, what was needed to maintain them going forward was investment into decarbonization, into future proofing. Actually, there's a large number of high carbon jobs which won't necessarily disappear, let's say, in manufacturing steel and currently using coal-fired blast furnaces. Mika, let's go a slightly sort of bigger picture view on this, which is, it seems to me one reason your work at the TUC is very important is that in discussion of green issues, perhaps some parts of the environmental movement maybe haven't had workers' concerns enough at the centre. Is that fair? I'm not asking you to criticise the environmental movement, but it's just more 
if this transition is going to succeed, it's got to be fair to consumers, but it's also crucially got to be fair to workers, doesn't it? We all need to be part of that transition and workers need to be at the heart of it and can play an essential role in our work. Many of us are workers and in workers in high carbon sectors have crucial skills and agency in building that climate transition in what it looks like. And I think there's also massive power in coming together. And that that's where I take a lot of hope from is partly also, you know, trade unions have made mistakes sometimes in the past in siding on the wrong side of battles and fights over the climate transition. Last question. Is there a particular model, either here or elsewhere, of the way in which workers' voices have successfully been put as part of the green transition? Is, is, is there a sort of place you would point to or a, or a model that you would point to that does it well? Because I think part of this is hearing the voices, the interests and the aspirations of workers. I think there are many, many different models on where we've seen transition happen. And people often point to, let's say, the Ruhr in Germany. And it's interesting to see how Orsted as a, an oil and gas company have shifted to being an offshore wind company and the role of workers within that. But actually, I think maybe it's more, given your question was about hearing the voices and the aspirations of workers, it's more useful to look at home here at the struggles that are already happening and where we're seeing workers make those demands. So, for example, GK and Automotive was an automotive supply company based in Birmingham that was making parts for petrol and diesel vehicles. And the the asset stripping owners came along and said, oh, actually, we're planning to close the plant and we're going to shift production to Central and Eastern Europe, maybe to Germany, maybe to Poland. And the, the workers at the plant were like, no, actually, what we want is we want to make components for electric vehicles right here and right now. And we're going to put together a plan on how to make that happen. We'll work with experts from outside. We'll, we have the expertise of working in the factory of putting it together. And they organized and they built an amazing plan on how they could be part of that electric vehicle transformation. They also balloted to go on strike because of the, the closure. Unfortunately, the S-tripping company decided, no, actually, we're going to shut you down anyway. But not every example needs to look like that. Like we don't lose all the battles. In Rolls-Royce Aerospace, they organized saying, we're currently making planes or parts for planes that are driving fossil fuel consumption. And we want to be part of a clean transition. Maybe we can make wind turbine components. Maybe we can do a whole range of other things. And they negotiated a Green New Deal MOU with Rolls-Royce Aerospace. And they're still pushing for more action on what that transition can look like in their factories in Coventry, in Lancashire, Incheon, and just on the outskirts of Glasgow. So that is workers in the present organizing, saying, here's what that just transition can look like in our communities, both in terms of maintaining our jobs, but also accelerating that climate transition that gets us all to where we need to be. I think what would be amazing is to see more organizing like that, more plans coming out of workplaces and the environmental movement showing up and supporting organized workers when they're putting those plans out, whether it's showing up at the picket line when they're striking or when they're just putting out the plans and coming out and pushing them to the employers and having that joint collective power. Okay. Well, look, Mika, you've been a brilliant guest. You've explained really clearly why and how workers can be at the centre of this green transition and we can create better lives for working people. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. To talk further about this issue of public engagement, which we touched on in the first interview, 
I'm glad to say we're joined by Jake Ainscoff, who is Senior Research Associate at Lancaster University. And Jake is working with the CCC, uh, the Climate Change Committee, on the role of deliberative processes in climate policy. And he also has a PhD on some of these issues. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Yeah, really glad to be here. So we're big fans on the podcast of deliberative democracy. Uh, We've talked to your colleague, Becky Willis, a couple of times. Talk to us about how you think this method of engagement with people is relevant and important in relation to the climate crisis. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think the first thing I'd go for is the fact that it's not one method. So often people hear deliberation or deliberative process and they think big, full-scale citizens' assembly, 100 people in a room, and that's what it takes. But in reality, all deliberative methods are a reform of engagement where you allow people the space to learn, the space to think, and the space to discuss issues with their peers and with a wider group. And so that can take many different forms. So and it depends what you want to do with it. So if it's a big ticket issue that you think, you know, needs kind of national scale attention, then maybe a big kind of big all guns blazing citizens assembly, proper press coverage, get out there is the way to go. And, you know, we've seen that used successfully in places like Ireland, leading to the reform of several laws there, particularly around same sex marriage and things like that. So that's one option. But another option is to say, well, actually, there's this really knotty policy issue. And what we need here is to, to gather together kind of the insights that people can bring to this policy issue above and beyond what we get from the technical policy analysts. For example, some of the work we're doing with the CCC is around home energy decarbonization. And you could do all the economic modeling in the world on that. But, you know, it's really valuable to go and talk to someone and they say, you know, great, you want me to put in a heat pump, but come and look around my tiny flat and tell me where the water tank's going to go. So, it depends what your problem is, depends what you're trying to do with them. And what we're trying to do is trial out different ways of using these methods to address different types of problems. This is probably unfair, but can you give us a sort of sense of which method works for which issue? So I think the big flashy assemblies, they work when you don't need the granular policy detail. There is a big decision to be made one way or another. So be it around abortion rights, be it around same-sex marriage. That said, they work well when they have the buy-in from the relevant people. If they sort of happen and disappear, then then they don't. Just to pause on that one, I'm very interested in using this, if I become the Secretary of State for Climate Net Zero, using this these methods. Give me an example of something where that would be relevant. So one of the ones would be things like negative emissions technologies. To what degree should we be hoping or relying or sort of having faith that there will be a technical solution to this problem. Um, you don't need people to come and talk about the kind of mechanics of, you know, where you put direct air capture storage technology. You need people to come and decide, as a society, are we willing to take on that level of risk, thinking there might be a technological fix somewhere down the line, or are we not? Another one would be big picture. This transition, some of the money is going to be investment and we'll get paid back. Some of it's just costs we're going to have to shoulder. And how do we spread them out across society? I think those are the types of questions that kind of the the big pitch systems assemblies can, can be really valuable for. As you look around the UK, we've had a national citizens assembly, we've got local ones. Are there particular ones that you point to that have really been successful either in themselves or in their influence or particular conclusions that they've reached, which you think are important? Yeah, so it's an interesting point that you raise because the impact of these things is obviously not just dictated by how good the process is. It's, it's how is it embedded to existing decision-making institutions? How is it received by them? 
I think with a lot of public engagement stuff is the government doesn't want to turn up to the conversation. There's a lot of things they just don't want to have conversations about. They're kind of hoping that people can carry on living their lives and they'll use technologies. What's an example of that? So around flights, for example, you know, people at government have explicitly said, carry on flying as you are, you know, we'll fix this, this technology. Food as well, eating meat, government have said they don't want to get involved in that. So actually, one of the one of the most interesting I think I've seen was Kendall Town Council, like very small scale local government ran citizens jury, got a lot of buy-in and, you know, they've, they've changed things. They've, they're actively bringing down the speed, speed limit through the middle of town, for example, and that has safety implications, but also brings down emissions. How interesting. And why has that one worked then? I think there's two things about it. One, there's high levels of buy-in from pretty much everyone at that local vicinity. So you've got people pulling in the same direction. But also the town council obviously doesn't have that many powers. So what's kind of happened is that the councillors have taken some of these suggestions under their wing and used that, used that mandate, used that support to take that to a higher level of governance to say, you know, we this is something people really care about. That's really interesting. Tell me this. I said in my book that I thought there was a case for making the Citizens Assembly a kind of permanent feature, a bit like the Climate Change Committee. Is it a good idea? If I was a Secretary of State, what would you be advising me that it should cover? I'm doing, I'm practising open policy thinking here, so I'd be interested in your thoughts. No, I like it. I like it. So my view is it depends what you want to do with it, and that will determine how you set it up. I think it would be a really good thing as a way of signalling to the wider population where government's getting things right and where they're not. To a certain degree, the CCC does that, but a lot of people aren't going to read CCC reports. If you had a standing assembly that every year did a similar role to the CCC that said, you know, from a from a kind of wider public's point of view, how are you doing here? And they had some independence, so they had a budget, and they could do the comms around it, and it was separate from government and could kind of play that role according to account. Um, I think that could be really valuable. On the second part, I mean, that is partly what I'd been thinking about, is that if you're going to make this big transition, you've really got to have a constant connection with people and how they feel like it's unfolding. Less sort of commentary on how the government's doing and more engagement on where government should be going. Is it, for example, the home insulation mission, is it being organised in a way that's going to work for people? Or are you saying that research is done in, in other ways? No, I think I think that is one thing you could get out of that. But I guess, you know, it's important to note that the type of engagement that happens, and deliberative engagement is one form of communication between sort of diverse publics and policymakers. Yeah. And, and the way that they are constructed has certain implications. And what I mean concretely by that is there's some people who won't engage in it. You know, or they might turn up and be like, nah, I'm not into it, I'm out. Yeah. And so I think... Yes, you can get that kind of thing from citizens' assembly, but it needs to be put in context. So actually, I was at the launch yesterday, even, of the UK Energy Research Centre have just launched this uh, public engagement observatory for climate. And one of the really interesting things they've done is really thrown the door open of what we mean by public engagement. So yes, you have your organised processes, and yes, they bring you really useful insight and intelligence, but what about protest for or against? What about sort of community spaces that are self-organizing, all of these types of things that are going on day to day, you need to put it in context and think how else are we sort of getting feedback on the way the government's going about this and to not just look to these formal kind of organized processes. Now, I'm delighted to say at this point in the interview, Jake has been joined by his young son, Angus. So if you hear some crying in the background, it's not me or Jake. 
So talk to us about this question of legitimacy and is one of the challenges for the formal deliberative democracy processes that it's quite a small number of people? I suppose I'm thinking if you've got a controversial thing that you want to do as a politician, you maybe it helps you a bit if a citizen's jury either comes up with the idea or endorses the idea, but it probably doesn't get you all the way. How does it translate into giving legitimacy to decision-making? Because I think that's something I wrestle with quite a bit. Absolutely. I realise you've had people like Graham Smith and, and Rebecca Willis and Arkham Fung on the show, yeah, so I feel, yeah. feel you know, they, they're head honchos about this stuff. But I think my view is, is basically similar to theirs, is that these are not standalone things. I personally, in most contexts, would not be in favour of empowering them for all of these concerns around legitimacy. But what they can do is, you know, as part of a wider system of decision-making, they can help to ensure that the views of wider publics, if you like, are considered in decision-making. Sure, sure, sure. Let's ask a final question. If you were appointed as part of the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff's utopia, as Minister for Public Engagement on Climate Change, what would you be seeking to do if you had carte blanche? Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a cop-out in that, obviously, as someone from the sort of liberty tradition, I'm not so into kind of policy dictact. So my thing would be just turning up to the conversation. One of the issues we've got is the government just doesn't want to engage. And what we've seen is that everyone else does. You see protests on the street, you see local climate assemblies, you see national climate assemblies. And the government just isn't turning up. They're just putting their fingers in their ears and saying, we don't want to have these conversations, they're too difficult, or we're going to find a technical fix for you. So my big thing would just be to get them to turn up to the conversation. And that conversation doesn't have to be polite always. Not all conversations are. You know, it could get fierce, but at the moment, it feels like there's a lot of momentum towards getting better at this from a lot of different parts of society, but that's not currently being reciprocated. Well, look, that's great. Jake Ainscoff um, and Angus, um, really appreciate you joining us and talking to you about this, this really, really important issue. Thanks very much. So what did you think? Actually, actually, I've got something else I need to ask you. What did you think of page 572? It was my favourite. I thought, <laughs> surely this can't get any better than page 571. But, I mean, they knocked it out of the park. And don't get me started on 573. I mean, that's really interesting you should say that because I tend to be in agreement with you. Wh- which was your favourite footnote on page 572? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the double asterisk. There isn't a footnote, actually, by the way, on on page 572. But right. Anyway, let's end this farrago of nonsense. Yeah. So go on. Seriously, what did you think? So often when we do climate episodes, I either come away feeling depressed and thinking, oh, well, it's too late. You know, my son's going to grow up in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Or I, I think what I thought today, which was actually the the will is there, the ideas are there. We just need the ambition to implement it. And I'm talking about a UK context here, which is important to say. What you mean is you need the Climate Change and Net Zero (laughs) Secretary, I think is what you mean, yes? Yes, it means cometh the hour, cometh the Ed man. I mean, you only need a little bit of prompting to say that. Uh, But but that's that's what I was getting to. But, I mean, it's it's always, always with this as well, you know, just the opportunity um to, out of a terrible situation to to restructure the economy in a in a fairer way and you know i did enjoy hearing about um how ambitious the uk has been at setting targets if not necessarily keeping to them and and hearing that other people uh other countries in the g20 
look to us for leadership on that. That's that was surprising news to me. I mean, I just want to say on that target thing, relatively speaking, yes, but no country's doing enough. Right. I mean, I think we could go further and faster. Of course. I think the you make such a, a characteristically important point, which is that there is an optimism here about what can be done. And also, I think the single biggest thing I take out of this is that it's now the ethically right choice, obviously, and it's also the economically right choice. Yeah, that stuff about oil. Exactly, the the price of oil and gas. You know, it's not the way, way I think about this is we don't have to have one crisis, we have three. You know, we have a climate crisis, an energy security crisis, and a um, cost of living crisis. And the answer to all three is green energy. You know, that is just a very different situation than, you know, even you'd have said 10 years ago. Yeah. I think this public engagement point is obviously right. And let's be honest, the thing that could tip it all in the right direction is me endorsing no bacon, bacon sandwich. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Please let us know what you think, either about what you've heard on the episode or maybe you have uh, digested the whole 600 and how many pages, Ed? 612? 19? 19. No, 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 19. 19 pages. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, cheerfulpodcast.com. Send us an email through the website. This comes from Sophie Cat, who says... Hi, Ed and Jeff. In response to Ed's question about headphones on the bike, may I suggest bone conductor headphones? Yes. Is this I'm what you've there. got? Okay. I'm there. So, Sophie Cat, come on down. She says these vibrate just outside the ear. They do. So they leave your actual ears they free do. to listen to the world around you. They have an easy to hit button on the outside to quickly stop and start. I haven't quite to. learned that, by the way. That's I found that quite difficult. Yeah. She they've been tested on the bike. Um yeah. uh, she got some. She says, I just returned from cycling to Land's End to John O'Groats oh. for my summer holiday. Wow. That's oh. intense. Yeah. She must have passed uh, Ian Botham on the route yeah. um, for my summer holiday and use them to listen to podcasts as I pedaled my way along quiet country lanes. In fact, this conversation reminded me of listening to your podcast on making nature accessible to everyone as I pushed my way up the Y Valley. Um, it struck me as you discussed the struggle to uh, that many face to reach nature that a parallel issue is access to cycling most in the uk can fairly comfortably reach nature on two wheels and explore far more of it than is possible on foot alone the ability to escape the city is one of the things which draws me repeatedly back to my bike um of course, bikes are good for so much more, too. I'm a big fan of the book How Cycling Can Save the World by Peter Walker, which I believe it was talking to Peter about that book on the podcast, which spurred our interest in it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think Sophie Cat is on to something in a big way here. Yeah. So Sophie suggests we do a future episode. I would refer Sophie to uh, the, the previous episode, but it's definitely worth revisiting. I it's think. a bit like Donald Trump has a tweet. There's a, a Donald Trump tweet for every, you know, thing he did as president there's an episode for every isn't there yes that, that goes our back catalog yeah when you're 251 episodes not in, out yeah um she also says uh, i'm loving hearing about ed's developing relationship with cycling after initial apprehension yeah it's developing i i'm a little bit worse for wear as i was saying to you before we started recording from the dog incident um that happened i a sort of little bit pain in my leg and i think i sort of maybe it's been slightly overdoing it but i'm such i'm such a convert i'm I'm just such a convert that's great um i mean it is partly the people who say nice things to me as i ride past 
In fact, somebody said to me actually last night, oh, it must be quite difficult for, for, for you when you're cycling because you're so recognisable. People probably aren't very nice to you. And I was thinking, <laughs> no, actually, no, no, actually. I'm surprised you haven't had It's Me, Ed Miliband, printed on your helmet. Yes. <laughs> Stop me for a selfie. I could, I could, I could, I could sort of have a cardboard, you know, one of those end is nigh cardboard yeah, things yeah. On, on my, I'd like, stop me for a selfie. Hoot if you want a selfie. <laughs> oh, God. I can see it. I can see it now. Uh, right. This is, uh, let's get off me for a minute and talk about me. Uh, this is Isla Kemp, Access Rights in Scotland. Hello, I was listening to your recent podcast on access laws and the right to roam, and I couldn't help but think of my dad, Nick Kemp, and his friend Dave Morris, who were both involved in negotiating the Scottish access legislation. Dave has campaigned tirelessly for years for the right to access land for all, and they both talk a lot about to build access movements. In 2021, he won a Patagonia Award for Access Campaigning. My dad currently runs a blog campaigning about national parks in Scotland and has campaigned against bylaws banning camping in the Loch Lomond National Park. They're both always looking to get the message out about access campaigning and will be a really good source of information. I also wanted to say how much I enjoyed the episode on access rights and the right to roam. As someone who grew up listening to talk about it around the dinner table, it's been wonderful to see them develop. And I thought your episode handled it brilliantly. Oh, thank you, Island. And, and what a thing, what a thing for your dad to have been involved in. As, as Nick Hayes said, I think, on that episode, um, it's the gold standard, he, th- he thinks, of that type of legislation anywhere in the world, which is quite something. And your interviews, Jeff, were the gold standard of interviews. <laughs> All right, this comes from uh, Jason Carey on the subject yeah. of fungi. Funky, it's a funky, funky email. Listen to this, this, this is going to blow your mind. Well, the mushrooms. Well... This this is the, these mushrooms. This mushroom fact is going to blow your mind, irrespective Rather of the mushrooms, the mushrooms themselves. themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, in France, you can take a mushroom to any pharmacy and have it identified. I mean, is this really true? I think we need some French listeners to confirm this. And also, maybe we should get people to like do a video of themselves going into a pharmacy in France with the mushroom. Yes. And like, don't you think? Yeah, def- definitely. I'm going to be, I might be in France soon. Take a mushroom. Take a chanterelle. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. We are the warm bath of the outro. Right now, I need to crowdsource some medical advice. Yes. It's sort of medical slash sporting advice. So I have been having some issues with my neck and I went to see the osteopath. And I fear the part of this, according to the osteopath, well, according to my wife, actually, and then the osteopath supporting, which is really irritating, uh, is to do with the way I do breaststroke in the ponds. Oh, no. Yeah. I told you I've got screw foot when I do breaststroke. I wonder if you've got something similar going on with your arms or your neck. Screw neck. Yes. Um, I mean, basically, the way I saw it online was it's if you keep your head out of the water, it's as if you're walking along with your head, like, facing the sky all the time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because if you think about it sort of positionally, that's sort of what it is. Um, But I, I don't quite know how to... I've got some goggles, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just go into the water. You need a little scuba thing as well. Yeah, but what do you do about your nose when you go into the water? I I, I see swimming clips on your nose, a little scuba thing, and... No, no, that's like, you're just taking the mickey out of me now. (laughs) 
But then there's backstroke. The, what the osteopath said is do backstroke. You look like a show off. Well, I don't know about show off. It's more that I'll just end up sort of hitting a duck. Yeah. <laughs> do, the butterf- a do the butterfly. No, don't be ridiculous. You're not taking this ser- nearly seriously enough. What if you started swimming in one of those things that they sell in the airport that you can put around your neck? You're not taking this with the seriousness a neck brace, Jeffrey. Well, let's let's throw it out there. I mean, do you know the problem? You know the problem I'm getting at, don't you? I, I can imagine. Yes, I can. I can see exactly what that was. It's be. like you know. Mm. Yeah, Ed is uh, is miming his swimming technique to me. Maybe somebody who listens to this knows, say, for example, Duncan Goodyear, and they, they could find out how the professionals do it. Just, I'd like some technique advice about: is there a sort of easy way if you've not really properly learnt to swim with a sort of proper training? Somebody email in, otherwise we're going to be hearing about this week okay, in week out. Put me out of my misery. Yes. Then. Let's, should we just? Do you want to thank our guest? Yes, I do. Uh, so thank you to Mike Thompson. Mika Minio Paloello and Jacob Ainscoff. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. She is uh, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDents. Ed Seed composed the music and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been deeply unsympathetic to my predicament. He's been swimming poorly in deep water. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.